This morning uh, might hit a little hard um, because we have to let the text do its work on us. We have to open ourselves to it, and we happen to come now to a rather stern pastoral exhortation. Now, unlike the kind of sermon where I decide you need to hear something, and so I make a sermon and force that upon you, we happen to be going through a book, and so I will leave it to you to decide for yourself how much you need to hear this. Uh, I'm not assuming anything about anybody in particular here. Really, I think all of us, maybe especially a preacher, uh, needs to be submitted to the exhortation um, rather than simply delivering it. But there is the possibility of some defensiveness here. I think it must have been a little hard to hear. Um, reading along, I can imagine for the first time, whoever, or listening along, I mean, uh, common, common understanding is that Hebrews was actually first a spoken homily. So imagine just having someone say the words of Hebrew to you. I think John mentioned that uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, but eventually it's written down, you know, and can imagine reading it for the first time or hearing it for the first time and, and we're kind of trucking along through these lofty claims about Jesus and and his his supremacy over the law and and his role as a high priest the great high priest and it's sort of thrilling i mean it could be i can't tell how thrilled we are so far but we'll get there um, but for for people with a certain frame of reference certainly uh, thrilling, and 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 then we get to this moment. So let me read this to you. I invite you to take a deep breath and open yourself to the exhortation. About this, this being... Jesus as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say that is hard to explain since, because, you have become dull in understanding. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good and evil. Therefore, let us go on toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation. The foundation, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. The foundation. 
And we will do this, if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have, who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away since on their own they are crucifying again the Son of God and are holding him up to contempt. Ground that drinks up the rain, falling on it repeatedly, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless. And on the verge of being cursed, its end is to be burned over. Even though we speak in this way, beloved, we are confident of better things in your case. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we want each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end, so that you might, may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So grow Grow up. I'm not confident that we say this enough to one another, in part because I'm not, we don't know how to say this to one another in ways that aren't hurtful. I think we recognize in each other, maybe too readily, certainly more readily than we recognize in ourselves, when someone is just being infantile and needs to grow on up. But it's hard to communicate. It's hard to say to each other, listen. You, you ought to be in a different place by now. But you're not. So, grow up. That's what we're going to try to ponder together this morning. How to hear that. How to hear that for ourselves. So, three questions will frame our our ponderings. First, what's with Hebrews? Uh, and then what does this have to do with us? And what should we do? So I'm aiming to get practical this morning. I'm aiming to get practical. This exhortation is practical. Growing up is a practical thing. Um, but it's not really obvious, I venture, what all this business about Jesus, the high priest, and the order of Melchizedek has to do with growing up. And so maybe we can maybe we can open that up a little. First, what's with Hebrews? Next slide, please. There. Oh, one back. There he is, old Melchizedek. Old Melk. Old 
So it's useful to ask ourselves, what gave rise to this message? Why, why say these things in the first place? About Jesus, about the priesthood, about later on the tabernacle. And the bottom line, brothers and sisters, is we don't know. We don't know. But there are some likely candidates here. One is that the writer is addressing the same situation that Paul was, which is why many in the history of the church just went ahead and said, oh yeah, Paul wrote Hebrews. Because it seems to be wrapped up in the same controversy about whether or not Gentile converts need to think like Jews and whether or not Jewish converts need to become less Jewish. There's there's a battle here about the meaning of the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. And so maybe that's the context. Maybe it's this conflict where some are saying to the Gentiles who've come to faith, you need to be, you need to be more Jewish. This is where the promises are. This is what it means to be the people of God. And so in response, the Hebrew writer is saying, actually, you Jews, you Hebrews, you need to think better of what the Old Testament means. Right? Maybe that's what it is. Others think it may just be the basic alienation from Judaism that begins to happen toward the latter part of the first century, where the church, which was once viewed as a sect of Judaism, just one group among the Jewish people, who believed that the Messiah had come and had begun to include Gentiles into the people of God. A very strange group, a fringe group, maybe one worthy of disdain, but still a Jewish group. And then as time passes, it becomes increasingly obvious that the animosity is pushing that group away from Judaism and creating, therefore, in the church some deep confusion about what Scripture means. Because remember, for them, Scripture is what we now call the Old Testament. That's all they've got. And then a few random letters from people like Paul and John and Peter. right? And so those aren't in circulation everywhere. For the church, Scripture is the Hebrew Bible. And there's, there's a struggle then to understand if it's not if it's not that because of Jesus what do we make of it how do we understand our relationship it feels almost like we're getting a divorce here from our roots it feels like we're losing our identity as a as a part of God's historical people so how do we understand the continuity if Jesus has created this radically new thing, yet it is the old thing because the promises came through Abraham and through Moses and through David and through the prophets, how do we understand this? And so that might just be it. It's just there's enough sort of turmoil in the church about who we are and how we understand our Bible that the Hebrew writer thinks, you need to hear this. You need to understand better. Or maybe it's actually the destru- destruction of the temple. In AD 70, uh, the Jerusalem temple is leveled. 
Only the foundation stones remain. It's the Wailing Wall today. And that certainly precipitated a crisis in Judaism, and no doubt in Christianity as well. Because there is this continuity. Because this is still the temple of our God. Remember, the, the very first uh, church gatherings in the book of Acts are happening in two places. In homes and to worship at the temple. It's still a part of who they are. The, the apostles don't go, temple, we don't. No, no, no. It, it's God's temple. He commanded it. His people built it. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant resides there. Jesus doesn't erase that. Just because the, the, the curtain of the temple inner sanctum was torn at Jesus' crucifixion, symbolizing a radical new era in regard to the presence of God, just because that's true doesn't mean the temple was nothing. And so when it's destroyed, possibly, there's a theological crisis in the church. You start thinking, like, if this can happen, again, second time it was destroyed, this is where we are, maybe, what are we, what are we doing here? And the Hebrew writer responds to the community's crisis by saying, look, how much greater, how much greater is our high priest who enters the heavenly holy of holies than the, the earthly shadow of those realities, which is what those buildings and so forth were. Now, the Hebrew writer actually doesn't talk about the temple. He talks about the tabernacle because his place in the story where he's imagining God's people is earlier in the desert, in the tribulations of, of the wanderings of God's people. Um, but that doesn't mean one thing or another. Uh, it, it, it might just be that this is the necessary conversation because the destruction of the temple has rocked the church's reality. So we don't know. We don't know precisely, but it's something like that. And what's true is that, you can go to the next slide, whatever happened, it results in a loss of meaning, a loss of faith, and a loss of hope. That's what the Hebrew writer believes he or she is addressing. And that's, if you, if you go through the whole book and highlight those things that are evidently what the writer wants to happen, it's understanding, faith, and hope. Right? And so, if we, church, we who are part of this same church who received this letter and receives it still as Scripture, if we experience Hebrews in a way that doesn't help us understand what this is all about, namely our life, as Christians, if we experience it in a way that doesn't help us understand whether we can trust what we've heard, if, if it's not clearer to us what difference our faith would make because of the book of Hebrews, we're reading it badly. 
We're reading it badly. And we need to reckon again with the challenge that the author is issuing to us. It might be that we need to grow up a little bit in order to eat some solid food. It might be that what the Hebrew writer is straining to tell us about the high priesthood of Jesus is solid food, and we just don't have the teeth to chew it. It might be that these things are hard to explain, not only because they're deep things, but because we have become dull in listening. That's a, a... a different translation. He says dull in understanding in my NRSV here. Uh, anybody have anything different? Dull in hearing. That's what you've got? What, what version is that? Is it NIV? Yeah. No longer trying to understand. Spiritually dull and don't seem to listen coming at us from all kinds of angles. Well, what was that? That was a new thing? Yeah, yeah, spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. (laughs) So what's important is to recognize that that word dull, so a very very wooden translation would be what the NIV has, which is dull or sluggish or lazy in hearing, literally referring to the the auditory capacity. That, that word dull or sluggish or lazy is the same one used down in 6.12 so that you might not or may not become sluggish. So that frames this whole thing. That's what the author's concerned about here. Is it concerned about a kind of dullness of hearing, an inattention, an indifference, a laziness, or a lack of appetite? a lack of appetite that's characterizing this church with dire consequences. Because the author is pretty clear that the fundamentals of the faith, let's read those again. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment— These are not sufficient to safeguard this church in the midst of the turmoil that they're experiencing. Whatever it is, whatever its cause, the fundamentals will not nourish them sufficiently in order to survive spiritually. And so, so how do we, how do we, Grow that appetite. The the Hebrew writer believes that understanding the supremacy of Jesus, right? This is an exposition. This is an exegesis of Old Testament texts, an an interpretation. Remember, we learned a little bit about Jewish interpretation in in the first sermon of the series. A midrash on the priesthood of Melchizedek that makes sense out of the superiority of Jesus over everything that we might have lost in some way. Everything that might have become confusing 
in some way. Seeing Jesus now in a different way, a different way than the Gospels, than even John's Gospel portrays Jesus. Envisioning Jesus as our high priest, as incarnate in such a way that he can fully understand us and fully mediate for us beyond anything any priestly apparatus could ever have done. To see him in this way is going to produce maturity and protection and assurance for these Christians. I wonder if it would do the same for us. I wonder if it would matter for us. Or is, it ju- is it enough? Is it just read the Gospels, you know, have our sense of who Jesus is, the way we see him? Or would it actually, would it actually safeguard our faith to dwell with the Hebrew writer in this vision of Jesus, our high priest, making intercession for us. I hope it would. I hope it would grow us, mature us. I hope it would give us hope. So what does this have to do with us? That next slide. Oh, good. Here's the question you need to answer for yourself this morning. Have you become sluggish in your hearing? Are you dull in your perception? As you you gather for worship and the songs we sing confess to one another the truths about God that make us who we are. As we open Scripture together and contemplate the Word that God is speaking to us, is your hearing lazy? Do you have an appetite for the deep things of God. That's Paul's phrase in 1 Corinthians. Do you hunger for understanding? Do you need the nourishment that that provides? How childish is your appetite? I've done a pretty good job uh, in inculcating in my kids um, an openness to culinary experimentation. It helps that we we spent time in another country, and so that meant that we were at the tables of a lot of people who served foods that are different. And um, and and continue to do that in multicultural environments in Los Angeles, and so the the requirements of courtesy 
bring, bring one to taste new things. And we encouraged our kids to learn to be courteous. And in fact, to learn to take delight in the bouquet of flavors that you get to experience when, um, when your friends are different, right? But, like pretty much all of us, they have gone through phases where we would put something on the table and they would go, I don't want that. And the response, my response, is always, you haven't tasted it yet. You can tell me that after you taste it, but you have to try it. You have to. You haven't tasted it yet. I think that there's that kind of childishness in the church sometimes, in us. That God would put something before us and without tasting it, without trying it, we go, oh, I'm, I'm good with chicken nuggets. I'm fine. Right? So, how childish is our appetite? I mean, it's just a matter of personal reflection. I, you know, we, we can't answer this for each other, but we can challenge each other. We say... How much more than the fundamentals is feeding your soul right now? But what is solid food? Let's talk about that for a second. What is solid food? I think um, 512, let's look at that for just a second. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. So what is this solid food? I think it's a deeper understanding of interpretation in the first place. I mean, certainly the Hebrew writer is is challenging the church to think differently about how they think about Scripture. In, in so many words, Hebrews says, read in this way. Read and think about Jesus in this way. And to, to a great extent, I think what is being challenged here is the church's tendency to hear that and go, well, I don't, I don't need that. I, I can read it the way I read it. I don't need that. I don't like that. I don't want that. That's a weird flavor. Okay? A deeper understanding of Jesus. As I've mentioned, obviously, that's at stake in this exposition of Jesus' high priesthood. Understand Jesus even more than you already have. You see, having faith in Jesus, a saving faith in Jesus, means you have understood Jesus to a certain extent. That is fundamental. It is not solid food. There's so much to understand about Jesus. There's so much that we can, we can receive from 
dwelling upon Jesus, expanding our imaginations to try to fit the one who is the fullness of all things, to imagine what it means for Jesus to save us. All that that means. There's so much. And so, we have to move past the basic teaching about Christ. He says literally, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ. And you might want to think, no, I want to bring that along and and add to that. Fair enough, but he's drawing a line in the sand here. There's the basic teaching about Christ. There's what you understand that causes you to believe in Jesus. And then there's everything else that you might know of him. Now, I don't mean just know about him. Because we're talking about our living Lord, who is present with us this morning. You might know of Jesus many things in the Spirit. Because it's the Spirit that teaches us the deep things of God, says Paul. So, know about Jesus, know of Jesus, know Jesus, but go past the basics. Examine yourself this morning and ask yourself, how much attention have I given to understanding who Jesus is, say recently, say in the last year? When I learn things about Jesus, is it consistently things I already know about Jesus? Reaffirmations of the things that I've learned. Now, if it is, maybe that means you're mature. That's not for me to say. Because there is a point at which we're mature enough that we have indeed known a great deal of Jesus. And so, what would you do but hear many of the same things again? And that's okay. But you have to answer the question for yourself. How childish is my appetite for an underst- a deeper understanding of Jesus? Are the basic teachings sufficient for me? A deeper understanding of salvation. Um, and this is challenging. In this passage, at least, we get into deep waters. The author claiming that there's something about salvation that you can lose if you don't take growing up seriously. There's something that you can lose and never get back. If the crisis that comes upon you, whatever it may be, that confuses your understanding and shakes your faith and makes you question a hope in things you haven't seen, that comes upon you and overwhelms you because you haven't grown up. You can lose something forever there. A deeper understanding of salvation. A deeper understanding of the hope that we have. And what that hope does for us now in the present. And practically, you know, it seems to me that this matters because growing up has to do with our ability to discern good and evil. And again, we can be overconfident in our ability to discern good and evil. 
I have had the pleasure of teaching a basic biblical ethics class at Lipscomb, and I'm I'm always impressed by how naive my students are about their own ability to distinguish good and evil. Because we think, I, you know, it's not that, it's like, I know how to be nice, right? I know how to, I know how to, like, I, sh- I should love my neighbor, right? I know God is good. But the thing is, distinguishing good and evil <laughs> really matters when it's not simple, when the question before you is complex, when the stakes are really high, when the pressure to choose badly is weighing upon you, when the cost of choosing well is so high, being really able to distinguish between good and better, between possible and necessary, between what's good and what God wants is rooted in Christian maturity. It's not something that you have just because you're a convert. It's not something you have just because you're a human being. And so if you want to be able to distinguish good and evil in the most complex terms, which all of us face, that complex doesn't mean unusual. (laughs) It means life is complex. It means the situations we find ourselves in are muddy and vague. And we, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do here. The Hebrew writer says, nourish yourself on solid food so that you are ready to discern between good and evil when it becomes necessary. And... The result of eating this solid food is patience and faith, ultimately. So that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so what should we do? Let's get hungry. yet. (laughs) I mean, I think that's the right response to this message. I think it's get hungry. So I I don't, you know, I wasn't like um, extremely picky as a kid, but I wasn't I wasn't adventurous I remember foods that I, I used to dislike uh, that I later came to like that are just sort of, you know, typical things like mustard. Um, but there came a point where 
I, sh I shifted my thinking, and I don't know if this actually works, but this is how I remember it. I shifted my thinking from, am I willing to try things I don't think I'm going to like? And that's a question asked in the context of, of missionary training. Am I willing to eat things I don't think I'm going to want? To, I really want to enjoy everything. Because the more things you like, the more enjoyment you have in life, right? I want to like things that I don't like. I really wish I liked that because that would be one more thing I could enjoy, right? It's a great way to live if you like everything you eat. Um, yeah, it's a great way to live. And so, and so I, I, I shifted and started developing a desire to enjoy flavors that were unusual. Go like, well, yeah, that's different, but why is it good? And, and I try to enjoy that. Try to, now, well, you know, we, what can you do? There are some, like, I, I still can't do tripe tacos. It hurts me because, you know, it's a very Mexican thing, and I love eating authentic Mexican food, and but I just I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. it, it, it tripe is stomach. Yeah. yeah. But see, it's not a matter of what it is. It's a matter of how it tastes. You've got to try it. And I've tried it multiple times. I've tried. I've really tried to, like, I just can't, I can't do it. So, you know, there are limits, right? But, but my point is, it's possible to develop an appetite. It's possible to to find yourself later enjoying things you didn't think you would. Um, and I think we should make that effort. But in order to do so, I think we have to be honest with ourselves in the first place. I think we really have to be honest about what my appetite is presently like. Like, like how much, not just how much scripture am I consuming, but how hungry am I for a deeper understanding of that. Um, I've, I have been voracious at times in my life. And I've, and I've nearly starved myself at times in my life. I became sluggish in hearing, and I was just like, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm tired, I don't care. Right? I've had enough of this. But at other times, I just couldn't, I couldn't read fast enough. I couldn't have enough conversations. I couldn't spend enough time pondering things. Um, cultivate an appetite. Judge for yourself whether you should want more. Got to be honest about that. And then, and then submit yourself to the warning. Right? Every word that comes to us from Scripture gives us the option not to submit. And when the Hebrew writer says to us, you've become sluggish in your hearing. you become lazy about it. We can reject that or we can submit ourselves to that. We can say, that's not about me. That was about them. Not my problem. Or we can say, okay, how? What do I do? What? What do I do differently?
is this true? Is this true of me? And if it is, I will submit myself to the warning. So what do we do in order to submit ourselves to the warning? Well, I think the first thing is what's identified as your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Right? He says, God's not unjust. Right? I'm getting on to you. I'm giving you a hard time here. I'm not saying that you've done everything wrong. And I'm not saying God's going to ignore the good that you've done. But that's right. Okay, so this is, <laughs> keep in mind, this is a rhetorical technique here. Smack you and then give you a hug, right? It's like, remember, I love you. Remember? Um, it, it's true, right? But, but he doesn't, he, want, he wants to get their attention from jump and then come back and say, okay, let's, I appreciate your faith. I appreciate what you've done. It's good. I'm not condemning that. I'm saying grow up. Grow from there. There's somewhere else for you to be. There are others who need you to teach them. Get there. Right? So, do the works. Demonstrate the love. Serve the saints. That may seem like a disconnect, but I think it's actually the way that you grow an appetite. Work up an appetite. You start serving. You recommit. You double down to loving your neighbors and your church family. And you find, man, I'm famished. I, I got, I've, got to, I've got to understand better in order to keep doing this. I need nourishment. And then, very practically, and lastly, imitate. Imitate those who've got a big appetite. Who in your life is patient and faithful? Those are the characteristics the writer identifies in these models of faith. Take stock. Ponder. And maybe you already have, and maybe you're already imitating people, in which case I commend you and continue to do so. But I find in conversations with disciples, very frequently at a certain age, we stop imitating people. Intentionally, I mean. Maybe in a certain situation, you get a new job, and you're kind of watching to see how somebody does a thing. It's like, okay, that, that's the etiquette. That's how I'll do that. But when it comes to our spirituality, as children, as young adults, we're far more likely to be paying attention to what somebody else does. How do they pray? What do they say? What do they do in that situation? And at a certain point, the illusion of adulthood causes us to stop looking for models to imitate. And I don't think that should ever stop. I think at every age, Christians should be looking around, whether it be to peers 
or to elders, those who are older. We should be looking for people who are exemplifying faith in ways that challenge us, in ways that call us to grow up. To, to, to pay attention to that, to, do, to imitate, is not something that happens by accident. It's a choice. So look for the people that are hungry. Look for the people that are chewing solid food. And ask yourself, well, what are they doing? How do they get there? What's that like? Imitate. Imitate them as they imitate Christ, our high priest. And that is the connection here. This isn't just an island in the text. A, a random aside. What precedes it is an exposition of Christ's high priesthood. And what follows it is more exposition of Christ's high priesthood. And right at the center of that is this challenge. Are you being lazy in the way that you listen? Are you dull? Are you uninterested in chewing solid food? Are you putting yourself at risk because you're trying to stand on the basics and the waves that are crashing over you are going to overwhelm that? Strive, strive, strive. Imitate. Be patient. Be hopeful. Get hungry. Let's end with prayer.